Welcome back to the Full Capacity Living Podcast. And is this one a mind blower or what? I love digging into things in the world of health and wellness that are a bit different, yet hold a lot of promise. Well, my conversation with Dr. Steve Behrman is just one of those topics. Steve Behrman received his undergraduate degree from UCLA and his doctorate from Northwestern University School of Medicine. After completing his family practice residency at UCSD, he worked nearly 20 years as a board-certified emergency physician at Scripps Memorial Hospital in Encinitas, California. But here's where it gets interesting. His book, Healing Beyond Pills and Potions, is about the impact of ideas on health and healing. It also looks at the kind of ideas patients hold that often contribute to illness, or contrastingly, that can actually contribute to their wellness and overcoming whatever illness they're fighting. Throughout his career, Steve Berman has incorporated medical hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming, commonly referred to as NLP, to help patients as they prepare for surgery or other types of treatment. It's really fair to say that the burden of scientific proof still rests on the people who are using these techniques, he says. It would go a long way to have well-designed studies proving out the points that they maintain. But based on the results that he's been able to get using hypnosis for helping patients improve their heart rhythms, open their airways, or help them through other types of procedures, it's very hard to have doubt whether it worked or not. So in this conversation, you will hear some examples of what Dr. Behrman has been able to do with his patients in the ER as well as patients in his private practice. So he talks a lot about, you know, my, I'm always interested in, in finding out about how people got to where they are, um, how this became an interest of his. And so I think that story is really interesting as well. So stay tuned for a really great conversation. Honestly, when I listened back on this to edit the podcast, I thought, God, there's so many wisdom pieces in this and things that, that I would use in my own practice as a health coach, which I actually have used. And with people that I know in my own life who are experiencing traumatic illnesses or, or any sort of illness or health issue, um, which I happen to talk to a lot about. So please stay tuned and listen to this. Um, I'm super excited for this conversation and to share it with you. And always keep in mind, uh, this podcast is sponsored by Karen Bush Health Coaching, Functional Medicine Health Coaching. If you're interested in the work that I do with my patients, head over to karenbush.com and schedule a 30-minute discovery call. They are complimentary, and we can kind of talk about, you know, what your interest is and, and where you need to go with your health and wellness. Um, okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Steve Bierman. Hi, uh, welcome, Steve. I have today. I have Steve Bierman here, um, who has written a, a really extraordinary book, um, "Healing Beyond Pills and Potions," and I've been immersed in it um, ever since I found out about it. And I'm excited to have you here to really talk about all of the ideas um, that you have 
through this book. And then, you know, really it's for caregivers, people, how you can shift the way you talk to people, but also just um, immense healing that, that you found within this. So um, thank you for this book, because I've already employed some things in my practice as a health coach, um, which have been really in the moment, really very helpful. Um, So you've obviously been studying this and doing this for a long time. I'm excited to hear about how you came to this um, idea of, of the hypnotic trance, the hypnotic state, the medical um, shifting of language, um, and just your training, your background, all of that. So let's start there in the beginning, kind of when this first really became um, apparent to you that it was necessary in your practice. Well, I, I was trained in a traditional manner. I went to UCLA undergrad and Northwestern University School of Medicine, and then trained uh, here in San Diego as a family practice resident and was boarded initially in family practice and then took boards later in emergency medicine and later still in medical hypnosis. Mm-hmm. So my my general introduction to caregiving was more or less a traditional allopathic pathway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not go into family practice, but rather started at uh, Scripps Encinitas here in California as a full-time emergency physician and worked almost 20 years as an emergency doctor. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, early in my tenure as an ER physician that I learned uh, hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming and started applying it uh, initially for just pain and anxiety relief in the emergency room. But ER docs are um, creative problem solvers. Uh, They have to do a lot of things on spur of the moment, just winging it. And so there were many such moments where I decided, excuse me, I'd use my um, hypnotic skills, absent trance often, uh, and see what happened. Mm -hmm. Through uh, really hundreds, maybe thousands of, of patients learned that Ideas matter, words matter. Uh, uh, Profound physical outcomes can be affected um, with words and words alone. Yeah, Uh, power of ideas to create healing within your own body from what you have, right? But where did you, where did you really, where was the connection between the medical hypnosis? How did that even become apparent to you that this would be something you wanted to learn about and employ in your, in your practice? Well, it, it didn't start as something I wanted to do in my uh, practice. It actually started uh, on a surf trip in Bali. Mm. My uh, ER doc buddy and I went up the mountain and saw some Balinese fire dancing. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was very impressive. We were front row. We got to see this guy dance around on red hot coals for half an hour. And at the end, interviewed him and, and he had not a single burn. And that was a fascinating mystery that was inexplicable uh, based on 
our knowledge of the science. It was one of those suspended mysteries. Then uh, within a year or two, Tony Robbins came to San Diego mm -hmm. and said to a bunch of regular folk, why don't you take off your shoes and socks and walk over these red hot coals with me? Yeah. And of course he had a, a method for getting that done. The method it turned out was uh, derived largely from neurolinguistic programming, the teachings of uh, John Grinder and Richard Bandler. But I quickly learned that uh, neurolinguistic programming, as I conceived it somewhat wrongly at the time, uh, was derivative uh, from the works of the great Dr. Milton Erickson, who was a medical hypnotherapist working uh, at that time out of Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, so I went, uh, after walking on the coals myself, I went to study uh, with both John Grander, great fortune of mine, uh, and also Steve Gilligan, who's an Ericksonian hypnotherapist, who lived uh, three or four blocks away from the hospital I was working in. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. And then I would, uh, uh, leaving Steve's office, I'd walk into an eight or 10 hour shift in the ER and have, you know, six to 10 people in, uh, in trance or later as things sped up, not in trance, but still under my hypnotic influence as I had uh, learned the technique and having the remarkable results that I outline in the book. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting that you decided that despite the, the maybe the boundaries of the ER and what you were doing at that point, that there was a way to figure out how can I get this in there if I'm not able to take the time to put someone actually in the trance that you learn, right? So shifting language and and kind of using that in small bits and pieces in your practice in the ER. Well, right. Uh, what, what was underpinning that was that in the beginning, our emergency room was fairly slow. I'd see 20 or 30 patients in an eight or 10 hour shift. So there were periods where I had time to do formal trance inductions. And I had gotten to the point where I could do an induction in 12 sentences. That was my big self-challenge. <laughs> but the uh, population of North County, San Diego, was growing fast. And uh, the population that we served in that emergency room was burgeoning. And soon, I had no time even for that. Mm. So I had to more or less abandon formal trance work and, and learn that uh, as I explain in the book that we've made a giant mistake. It's cost us dearly uh, by conflating trance with hypnosis. And when we, when we do that, it does two things. One, it gives us permission to do harm with our words because we think, well, they're not in trance. They're not hypnotized. What does it matter? And of course, I've had doctors say that to me. What does it matter? They're not hypnotized. But it also um, causes us to miss tremendous opportunities, as it, it sounds like you, you know, mm -hmm. opportunities to impart uh, healing suggestions and often to reap the benefits of that through uh, watching our patients get well. 
Sure. Yeah. Right. So uh, it turns out that hypnosis is a simple thing. Um, it's simply this mundane but still miraculous phenomena whereby ideas evoke responses, usually my ideas, responses in uh, the patient. It's not always the case that, that happens, right? Um, there might be a schizophrenic ranting out on the corner, and he's spewing thousands of ideas per hour. Uh, but those aren't really evoking responses normally, mm -hmm. right? So there's some distinction between what goes on there where he hasn't gathered our attention, doesn't have an influence of any kind between that and what goes on in, let's say, a caregiver-patient uh, interaction where you really hold attention and where your words have a certain importance to that person. Absolutely. So, so let's step back just a minute and kind of debunk that idea around what the general public thinks about hypnosis, right? Because I think that there is likely, um, you know, as, as you explain in the book, that that there are different ways of thinking about that. The words really matter. Hypnosis and trance are definitely different. But in the general population, people who don't really know much about this, where is this idea of hypnosis? What do people generally think about it as compared to what you would explain? Oh, I mean, we all grew up on Disney movies. All you have to do is look at, pick a Disney movie. You can do Jungle Books or... Aladdin, or it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. wherever they have a uh, hypnotic moment, someone is uh, almost forcibly inducing a, a trance, often for evil purposes. Sure. And so that's in the culture. And uh, we don't blame Disney for that. That was <laughs> long, long before these brilliant cartoonists started drawing. Um, Mesmer himself, and all to follow. Uh, even Erickson uh, thought of hypnosis as uh, related to trance as a special state, and that that state had various characteristics. So <clears throat> that's unfortunate. And it's easily proven that that's not true at, at all. The trance is a response to ideas that the hypnotist or caregiver uh, or authority figure, ideas that that person is presenting. But there are many, many other responses than trance that we can evoke, including responses in the direction of wellness mm. that are vitally important. Yeah. In the emergency department, I didn't need a trance to stop bleeding. I simply needed a little hypnotic technique, rapport, breathing with them, getting in their uh, rhythm, so to speak. Uh, and the authority that I had naturally as a result of being a physician, uh, which and, and their helplessness and dependency, which recalls in them a primordial childhood condition that predisposes them to follow the direction of whomever they uh, decide is a worthy authority figure. Yeah. So you talk about a couple of things needing to be present for um, some of this to happen. And later in the book, you talk about uh, that doesn't always have to be present, but the, the authority figure, 
um, the connection with um, language and breath and kind of moving in the same way that the person you're speaking to moves and the reason that you're doing this, right? So you said, you know, blood loss, right? People probably listening to that right now who haven't read the book yet may not know what that is, but let's talk a little bit about that authority figure, the way that you mirror people's movements and the things that you were able to achieve in, in the ER with, with patients. Right. So um, let's back up one step prior even to that. Okay. The, the governing principle of hypnotic method is that patterns once established will tend to persist. This has been said uh, for millennia. Um, Lucretius wrote about this. William James wrote about this. Pavlov wrote about this. And now today's neuroplasticians write about it all the time. They like to say uh, neurons that fire together wire together, which is just another way of saying patterns persist. It somehow seems more scientific because it reduces it to a cellular level. But as you can tell from the book, I'm not the keenest reductionist in the world. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> patterns persist. And the question then is, well, what patterns can we use to increase our ability to make our ideas, their ideas, and operative? That's the real question. Okay. And it turns out that um, there are uh, there there are some pre-existing patterns that we can utilize already. The first I mentioned it's um, it's this pattern. It's an infantile, hardwired survival instinct, whereby whenever the human organism feels helpless and dependent. It will seek for the one least uncertain. It doesn't scan for certainty, that's hard to do, but it scans for uncertainty, for signs of doubt. And it'll dismiss those who show doubt until it gets to the one who's least uncertain. And then it identifies with that one, which let's say we'll call the authority figure. And that identification ensures that the ideas of the authority will be the ideas of the one helpless and dependent. So it's a very important thing to understand because actually understanding that can lead us eventually to understanding placebo and shamanism and all the various therapeutic rituals from yeah. time. And also paying attention to the fact that what you say in that situation, if you are the one who is least, um, you know, the, or looked at as the authority figure, that what you say is really important and affects right. people. Well, think of it this way. That's exactly right, Karen. So um, there are two factors here. Uh, one is helplessness and dependency on the part of, let's say, the subject or, or, or patient. Um, when their helplessness and dependency is maximal, the hypnotic influence of the authority figure is enhanced. The other factor is the uncertainty, the evident uncertainty of the authority. And when that is maximal, it's inversely related to their hypnotic influence. So in, the hypnotic influence 
diminishes. And there are some brilliant experiments that are done by uh, Dr. Crum out of Stanford that actually demonstrate this. I call it law of identification. Alec Crum. Demonstrate this. That's right. Yeah. Um, she doesn't interpret it uh, the way I do, but I feel fair, fairly certain that uh, this explanation I'm offering you is a better explanation because it has greater reach and less variability. Um, but the key for caregivers is to know, and we're all caregivers at one point or another in our life, is to know that in those moments where you are evincing a certain uh, competence and the people who are have come to you or need you are relatively helpless and dependent, you've got to watch your words. It's not a free ride. Everything you say matters. That same person, me, say I go to the office today and I'll see three patients, two hours per patient. I'm going to have hypnotic influence in that setting mm -hmm. uh, because the factors that I just outlined are present. Yeah. But the same person walks back home and says hi to his wife and spouts out some idea that may or may not be true. Of course, I have no hypnotic influence in that situation. She's not helpless and dependent. And my uncertainty is evidence to someone who's been with me for 20 years. Yeah. So we, we need to understand that that pattern, which I'll call the authority pattern, is dominant in the clinical setting. Definitely, definitely. And then the other pattern that we can use, it happens spontaneously amongst humans, but we can also uh, uh, initiate it uh, methodically by imitating the uh, knowable attributes of the subject. So you can breathe with them, you can tilt your head the way they do, nod when they do, smile when they do, eye blink when they do the next eye blink, and soon what you've done is you've created a pattern of resemblance where you've collapsed the differences. Synchronized. That pattern also tends to persist. So if my all my visible attributes are the same as you, I equals you, then my idea is more likely to become your idea. It's not guaranteed, but that coupled with the authority pattern those two giant patterns push toward actualization. Yeah. And that's in part uh, what hypnotic technique really is. Using that, of course, you can induce a trance. But as I say, you can also relax a birth canal, open an airway, normalize a heart rhythm, reduce a dislocated joint. All of these things can also happen absent trance. Yeah, now that's the amazing piece of it is like, you know, you obviously have been doing this for a long time and it, it flows easily for you. Um, it takes some time to get there, but the fact that you're able to do that in situations, you know, just for sake of kind of putting this into a context, give me an example of something early on that happened. It doesn't have to be early on. You've got a lot of great examples in the book, um, but something that people can kind of latch onto and, and put this into practice and understand it in a context. How did, you know, a patient that you worked with? Yeah, well, first let me um, challenge the premise a little. Uh, I want 
people to understand that much of what I did in the emergency department, especially when it was the first time I attempted it, was not associated with belief or confidence in any respect on my part. Yeah. So the belief theory of making things happen, and I have great respect for writers like uh, the author of The Biology of, the, of Belief, but I'm sorry, that's not, in my view anyway, the, the way it works. The only belief that matters in what I'm talking about here is the patient's belief that you are, and it's an unconscious belief, that you are the one least uncertain, right? That's the only, everything else follows from the hypnotic method that I've outlined here. I'll give you an example because it was uh, one where I was sweating bullets and uh, quite likely to be embarrassed in front of my colleagues and had no notion whatsoever that it could work. Um, yeah, I went into the emergency room, ran my shift. One of my last patients on the shift uh, was a guy named Walter. I actually published this case, a guy named Walter who had a dislocated left shoulder. We see a lot of shoulder dislocations. And generally, uh, you do some kind of a manipulation to get it uh, back in. And there's, there's a small risk that you can damage the uh, nerves that run to the hand by doing that manipulation. So if it were possible to do a non-manipulative reduction of his shoulder, that would be much safer. Sure. So that in mind, I had just uh, read the chapter in uh, Grinder and Bandler's book entitled Transformations, the chapter on embedded commands. And I thought, well, I'm going to try this on my next shift. So this is a novitiate. I had no idea, period, right? And it was toward the end of the shift. And so I, I was holding Walter's arm but not pulling at all. Mm -hmm. And the nurses were busy about uh, getting ready for a change of shift. And I started telling a, a story. It was a metaphorical suggestion about a um, bowling ball that was rolling slowly and comfortably in a relaxed way all the way down to the pocket and finally landed exactly where it needs to be. And at that moment, my colleague who was about to take over walked in the door and he was walking toward me and I'm sitting there and I realized, oh, okay, I'm busted. I'm Because uh, I worked in a solo ER, there was only one doc at a time. And so now I'm found out and I'm holding it. And so all I could do was uh, what I had learned from Milton Erickson, because he said this often to students, and that was notwithstanding the sweat on my brow, exude confidence. And so I held, I held that arm and exuded confidence, whatever that means. And in a matter of seconds, plunk. And my colleague at that point was at the bedside and he looked at me and he said, what, magic? <laughs> Wow. So my first uh, of, of dozens of non-manipulative reductions of dislocated shoulders and elbows and so forth. 
So using the idea of a metaphor and your language was slow, sort of the way the ball would have rolled down the lane, you kind of used all those sort of un, unspoken cues in that time. That's right. So I used, first of all, my uh, authority. And that's I don't mean that in any paternalistic way. People should understand this is just a biologic uh, status with respect to Walter's helplessness and dependency and my certainty, sure. such as it was. Um, and then I used rapport. I was breathing with him. I was staying with his uh, rhythms. If he expressed something, I would re-express it using his words, not mine. So I was staying in rapport. And then I offered this metaphorical suggestion uh, just like our dreams offer metaphorical suggestions to us throughout the night. And the relation of the parts of that metaphor described a thing gently going back to where it's supposed to be, the perfect place. And of course, he understood that at that level, and that's exactly what happened. So you didn't preface it by saying anything besides just relating the story and not saying, you know, may, you know, maybe with people just like you who have dislocated shoulders, it may replace itself. You didn't say anything like that, or you just kind of gave the, the story. Nothing wrong with saying something like that. You know, it depends on the circumstance. He was in a lot of pain. He was willing to do whatever I suggested in that setting, it was okay, let's go. Yeah, right. In an office setting, which is where I practice now on a on a daily basis. Um, I'll often say things like what, what you just offered. Um, and uh, sort of gently coax people toward uh, their cure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there, you know, there are many, many paths that lead to the same place, the central notion is that ideas have an impact on your health and healing. The ideas of the caregiver and your ideas, and both need to be managed properly. Yeah, absolutely. What was the conversation with the, the doctor that walked in after he witnessed that? He said, you know, magic, but well, do you remember the conversation with him afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I was... <laughs> It's it's a anticlimax. I was tired. It was the end of the shift. I said I remember turning to the tech and saying, "Let's get a sling and swath on this guy." And then I turned to my buddy and gave report and left. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what I found really interesting was over the course of uh, about fifteen years uh, doing hypnosis and traditional allopathic medicine in the emergency room. I never had anyone come to me in earnest and say, hey, I've been watching what's going on there. Is that teachable? Could I learn that? You never had anybody say that to you? No. Wow. Because yeah. if, if I had been there, I would have been like, that's really interesting. I need to know more about that. And it, you know, what do you attribute that to? Well, the first thing is, um, all the guys that I, I worked with, we had like a, a six-man team, are really compassionate, caring people and exceedingly uh, good doctors, uh, top-notch guys. Um, but uh, like I said, it was a single 
doctor emergency department. And so everyone who was working was working at max speed, 110%. And I think largely it was because they couldn't conceive of uh, slowing down or getting on a new learning curve or anything like that. This is why uh, for me and others may differ, but I, I don't see the fundamental problem in medicine as being the disease treatment model or the fee for service model or any of the traditional complaints that you hear about uh, the modern um, United States health healthcare system. Um, the fundamental problem in my view is that because we do not recognize each other's humanity, the things that make us human, our fears, our anxieties, the ideas that drive us to health or to illness, um, we don't recognize anything noetic, meaning of or uh, pertaining to the mind, uh, the absence of things noetic, we're all reduced to cells and molecules and tissues and organs. And um, when you reduce humans to something so blatantly physical and physical only, you can schedule them uh, at 12 minute intervals and you can skip parts of the physical and you can ignore things. Yeah. If on the other hand, we realize that we've got to know what ideas are at play inside of this person, right. else we're not going to really affect a cure. Well, then when they schedule you 12 minutes, you revolt and you say, I can't do my job. Right, right, right. The fundamental problem in, in American allopathic medicine is, uh, the, the is material reductionism. It's the failure to see humans as human. Well, I, I would absolutely agree with you. My my background is as a medical speech pathologist. So in healthcare and in major hospital systems for over 25 years, right? And so my shift into the world of functional medicine and a lot of the physicians that I know and work with and the people that I work with that's exactly why they move into that world because you have more time. You can spend more time, talk to them about really all of the factors that contribute to whatever they might be experiencing. And that's what I like about what you just said. It's not that you let go of the allopathic pathway, right? Because part of that is, is important, but you're also bringing in this, this noetic piece. You're also thinking about the spirituality of somebody or or what what their experience in life was, what might be contributing to that. And that question that you ask people, why now, right? It's a question that actually I ask a lot of the, the patients that I see, um, why did you choose this path now? And, and you're referring to kind of when they started to experience certain things going on in their life, whether those are symptoms or a diagnosis that someone gave to them, um, you're asking why now? And that helps you to kind of create this um, almost like a, 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 you know, like a, you're creating like a script of what what's led up to this or what might be contributing to it. It's so very similar to what we do in functional medicine, which is why I found the book so fascinating to me um, because it adds just another element as well. So talk a little bit about that piece of it, how you bring in um, the noetic piece, right? Without having people feel like 
And and also, I want to talk a little bit about the that you didn't use the word stress because that's a really important piece. Um, so help me understand how that brings in some of what you you um, look for with patients and the the conversations that you have with them. So what we've talked about to this point is the impact of the ideas of the caregiver on uh, the patient. And we should realize that what hypnotic method does is it makes, say, my ideas, the ideas of the patient. And they actualize because the momentum of those patterns carries them through. But those aren't the only ideas at play. Um, it was a, around the same time, slightly later, that I read a really beautiful, brilliant, I recommend it to everyone, I'm gonna grab it here, keep it on my desk, essay by uh, Robertson Davies. And it's in the book called The Merry Heart. Okay. I'm gonna and, put this on that. The essay is called Can a Doctor Be a hum uh, Humanist? And in that essay, as I was reading it, I struck on an idea inspired by the author. And the idea was to ask this question, why today, why now, or why still, if it's chronic, mm. of my various patients. So I would ask, for example, after everything was stabilized, all the traditional treatments were administered, I'd walk up to the guy who had uh, a heart attack and say, you know, while we're waiting for the ICU bed, I have a question to ask. And, you know, forgive me, it's kind of a crazy question, I guess. And I have to confess, you're not going to know the answer. And I, I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. um, but if you had to guess, uh, you could have had this heart attack two weeks ago or two weeks from now. Why today? Just guess. Mm -hmm. And when you're asking for a guess, not a thought, you have to watch them. If you see they go into thinking, mode, go, ah, remember, we're not going to know. Just guess. And do it very casually so resistance is down. What you're asking for is a whisper from the unconscious. What might be the cause here? What might have contributed? Not the only cause. Right. What might have contributed? And you, uh, what I found consistently was uh, a tendential answer. There's always an answer, almost always. So it might be, well, I don't know, doc, do you think it has, they often answer with a question, do you think it has something to do with the fact my mother-in-law just moved in for five months? <laughs> uh, of finance or romance related issues or um, wanting to get out of work or uh, all, all kinds. And I outline these, as you know, in the book. Um, but when you ask why today, in the way I just said, mm -hmm. you don't want them to think about it. If you had to guess, could have been a week ago or two, could have been a, why is it still here if it's chronic? Why now if it's a, a, acute? And then you have to say the all important word just, which means, and nothing else, no thinking, no memory, memory, just guess, you'll get an answer that hints at a noetic cause, not the only cause, but a significant contributory cause. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is the most important question a clinician can ask 
once the diagnosis has been made. You've got to do your stuff first. But if you're going for a cure, and if you're not, I would say, you know, please tell me why not. Uh, yeah. For a cure, I would maintain you need to understand what the underlying contributory noetic causes are. And having done this now for decades, I can tell you the causes sort out in broad categories for almost, not everyone, you know, an anvil falls out of a second story and lands on someone's toe. There's no why today he's walking down the road. Sure. But for most people, uh, you'll get uh, one of uh five, say, categories um, that explain it. It may be related to a conditioning event. It may be related to uh, identification they still retain, even if they're 70 or 80, sure. with, with a, uh, a primary authority figure from childhood, usually a father or mother, uh, but whoever the primary authority was at that time. Um, they often, most often, I would say, have a baleful wish. And there's two kinds of unhealthy wishes. One is the retreat into illness wish. I got to get out of this job. I got to get out of this relationship. I got to get out of this situation, no matter what. And the thing I coach when I do uh, uh, public speaking, uh, the audience is uh, no matter what wishes are the most dangerous thing you can let in your mind because it gives free reign to, to your unconscious to decide what you really want to do is get out of that situation in a healthy way. Yeah. In a healthy way. Yeah. You know, and so when you talked about this in the book, it gave me an idea with one of the clients that I have right now who's had <clears throat> hives. <clears throat> since she was 11 years old and has not been able, you know, there's a period of time where they stopped, but they keep coming on and she's been everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And so, you know, I did ask that simple question because as a coach, I can just ask a question and it gets people to start thinking, right? I'm not giving them the answer, right? You're just saying, mm, think about this. What do you think? Why then? And why is the one thing I didn't say is why is it still happening? Right. Which, you know, a lot of this reaches into like the psychological nature of, of, of illness and what, what is happening with people where, when you started to, so as I, I listened to the book, I listened and I read it because that helps me to do both. Um, there's a lot of really great questions and great things that you bring forth with people when they start to unravel some of this. And that language and and how you were able to so artfully um, tease that out with people um, in the sessions that you have with them, where did that come from? Well, let me let me again just step back half a step. So, just as a subtle shift in what you're asking your your patient with hives is rather than say just think about it, just guess. Right. Because when they're thinking, their filters are on. Right. Okay. Yep. That's good. But if you say, you're not going to know and I'm not going to know, nobody knows. But if you had to guess, why do you, you can go back to when it started and say, why then? Or you can say, it could have gone away a week ago, or it could go away tomorrow or the next day. Mm -hmm. Why is it still here? Just guess. 
why. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. So, and then to your uh, uh, question, you know, my ability to tease out noetic causes is, like I said, it's the result of decades of answers to that very question. Let me tell you about, uh, I think this is really important if you have time for it, uh, a case I just completed this week. A physician with pancreatic cancer came to see me. He had already had a Whipple uh, procedure and he was uh, not thriving. He was continued to lose weight. He was uh, beleaguered with worries over his uh, possible uh, recurrence. He'd been cursed by numerous doctors saying these tumors never go away, things like that, which, you know, no physician could possibly know that. It's just arrogant to say. Yeah. Uh, but it had, he's, he was helpless and dependent. And the physician at the time evinced very little doubt or uncertainty. And so he was subject to the hypnotic influence of that doctor. So, you know, this is a classic example. I said, well, look, you, you got this tumor. Uh, if you were going to get it, you could have got it a year before or 10 years from now. Why not? And we're not going to know. So just guess. And he kind of rolled his eyes and he s sat still for a, a few seconds. And the most important thing you can do in that moment is say nothing. Just let it percolate up. It may take three minutes, which is a long time to sit still. But if, if you see there's some activity, just let, let, let it rise. And he looked at me and he said, you know, the word retirement keeps occurring to me. And he had retired about a year before he was diagnosed. Well, it turns out um, his father, who was a, a German farmer whose motto was work is life, mm -hmm. when ultimately for physical reasons he had to retire, he quickly became demented and uh, with Alzheimer's, and he, which is important in this story, and died. And there were many things in the history that suggested that this guy in his late 60s was still identified. He hadn't done the critical disidentification step that we all think happens automatically when we turn 21, but yeah. doesn't. So here's a guy identified with the father who becomes ill upon retirement, just like his father did. But when he got the diagnosis, he called his sister and he said, this was a little unbelievable, but true. He said, you know, I have a really bad diagnosis, pancreatic cancer, but there's a good side to it. And she said, oh, really? What's a good side? And he said, well, at least I'm not going to die of Alzheimer's. Mm. And when I explored that uh, with him, he, he said, yeah. I remember saying to myself before my diagnosis, I don't want to get Alzheimer's no matter what. And so you see one question there, why today, why now, why that happened? 
unlocks the two primary noetic causes that when you knock them off will affect the cure. One is a dangerous identification that must cease. Retirement is not the end of work in his system. It's the beginning of a new kind of work, the work of pursuing your curiosities and, and, and doing the internal work that you didn't have time for. That's one, that's a reframe on that. But the other is uh, you've got to take back and educate the unconscious, take back the baleful wish. I didn't mean no matter what, I meant in a healthy way. Yeah. No matter what was a mistake, you should be smart enough, you unconscious, to know when I'm making a mistake. Your job is healthy solutions. And so I can tell you with confidence, because I've had multiple patients like this over the years, he, he's, now he's not going to have a recurrence. Mm -hmm. Because although there may be some physical things that press toward that, they all work in concert. No, no symptom or disease is a result of a single cause, right. uh, in my view. And so when you've eliminated two or three out of four causes, there's not, there's not enough push for the other ones to succeed. Yeah, I think that's an important point about multiple causes, because I think in particularly in functional medicine, we talk about root cause and I always try to help people understand that root cause isn't just one smoking gun, no silver bullet. It's a multiple layers of certain things that that can come together to create that. And, and what you're talking about here sounds a lot like the story of Michael in the book, right? Where he came to you um, with, you know, end stage, lost a ton of weight, really, you know, at a place where he might not have lived, but he did. But he did. Right. I mean, that wonderful guy who is now happily married and weighs 169 pounds and he's solid muscle, he looks great. Um, he's in my social circle, so I see him occasionally. Okay. Uh, he was two or three days, according to his doctors, uh, two or three days away from dying. And he had, uh, you know, uh, guilt uh, was a, a primary uh, noetic cause. He had others, including identification with his father. But these are very common. You know, these noetic causes are very, very common. And uh, what I'm trying to teach and get out with the book is that when we ignore them, uh, if we buy into, say, the allopathic model and accept um, single source causation, uh, all we guarantee is that these patients are going to get sick again with something else. And so I'm trying to demonstrate ways to get to the root of the matter and to pluck out uh, these causes and, and banish them. Yeah, yeah. The whole, so, the whole point of my work. Which, which I think, you know, it, again, I love the fact that you mention in the book that it's not that you're, you're not going to um, be part of the allopathic way of looking at healing, but you're, you're bringing more to it, right? You can't just rely on that. That's not the only, the only way there's, there's other um, avenues to pursue. And, and it's really important to pay attention to those things and to look at the other 
things that are influencing the reason why you are experiencing whatever diagnosis or symptoms that you have, right? Absolutely. I think you know, my motto in treatment, and I bet it's yours too, is whatever works. And so I give a series of uh, lectures uh, at the Andrew Weil Center mm -hmm. for Integrative Medicine, which is a spectacular organization doing great good throughout the world now. And what I'm presenting, I, I present it as the grout that binds all these different mosaics, treatment modalities together. You can destroy the effectiveness of any treatment you give, whether it's an antibiotic or an acupuncture treatment or an energy or manipulation or herbal treatment, by simply saying to the patient at the end of that treatment, <clears throat> now try it. And um, I, I don't know if it's going to work or not. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Try always implies an obstruction. And one way or another, maybe we'll get to something that helps you out. That's just a terrible goodbye. Mm, yeah. There's suggestively positive in that. On the contrary, it's a host of negative suggestions. Uh, it's like saying to someone with a cold, you know, antibiotics won't help you. You just have to go home and tough it out. If you're not well in two weeks, give me a call. Yeah, yeah. It's a bag of curses. A bag of curses. Curses, hexes. Let's talk a little bit about that. And I love how you say, um, call me in a couple of weeks and tell me how well you're doing, which is like such a great way of talking about that. I tell people, call me tomorrow call and me. let me know how well you're doing. Yeah. I always sign off almost always with this. I say, as they're like, oh, 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 by the way, now I'm doing that very casually because resistances are down. By the way, you're not opposed to surprising yourself, are you? Call me tomorrow. Let me know how well you're doing. Mm -hmm. Casual, oh, by the way, you're not opposed to confusing. You've got, you know, this odd construction. They've got to work through that. And in the meantime, surprising or pleasantly surprising yourself and then the suggestion muted, call me tomorrow, let me know how well you're doing. That's a very different way to sign off and it's potent. It's if, potent and it seems so simple. Like it sounds like it's just this casual little thing you're throwing out there, but it's loaded with all these really very influential um, and supportive things around healing and health. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I I love the fact that you're teaching it at Andrew Wiles uh, Institute for Integrative Medicine. Where else and how is this received in the general medical population? And where have you been able to sort of bring these ideas that maybe you thought you couldn't bring them or they might not be interested? Well, look, uh, I'm working in San Diego right now, which I'm unapologetic and saying has one of the most broken medical systems I have seen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. I've been all, I've probably been in 600 hospitals in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, maybe more. Um, so everyone who's working here under the yoke of uh, hospital mm -hmm. administrations that 
has a competing purpose with my stocks. <clears throat> Everyone is uh, overworked, underplayed, um, trying to get by, uh, suffering sometimes without knowing it, soul suffering without uh, knowing it. And so it's a very, very difficult uh, environment uh, to walk into and say, hey, let's change everything up and spend two hours a patient. That's right. not going to no. Um, and big changes, because what I'm suggesting uh, represents a paradigm shift. Let's be patient-centered. But patient-centered, meaning the whole patient, and to define that further, including all the noetic influences on that patient, both imminent, intrinsic, and, and extrinsic. That's a big, big shift. So what you're also saying, though, is that there are small little tweaks that you can make that can make a big difference, which is kind of what I do with my patients in coaching. There are small things that you can bring in. You don't have to do the whole thing and you don't have to have two hours with the patient. So, so the, the first two thirds of the book are all about what you don't have to slow down one iota to yeah. say it right, to deliver information correctly. That's step one. Just learn how to talk because your words matter, right? And to, to your uh, previous question, I, I teach all around the world. I'm teaching in Australia and Europe and Canada and U.S. Um, so there are receptive pockets everywhere. As you suggested, Karen, there are, there are caregivers are suffering under the current systems. And they're looking for ways to restore their own humanity and engage in a human way with uh, their, their patients who they love and care about. It'll happen. It, uh, it's, you know, it's a new way of looking at things. It takes time. And so we need to be patient. I, I, I will also tell you that the rules of the road in, in uh, traditional allopathic medicine are set. And so in order to make inroads uh, with what I'm teaching, it's reasonable for people to require an experimental base so they have clinical trials that they can reference. And so I have my own, you know, 40 plus years experience with it, which I uh, report out in part in the book. But I'm happy to say that it, it looks like with Dr. Weil, he and I will begin uh, programs that ultimately will culminate in what I hope will be some um, exciting and highly confirmatory research that others uh, who don't have time for or haven't witnessed what I have personally can can read and then take as a cue to learn what they need to learn. That's that's really really hopeful. I'm. I'm personally hopeful for that because uh, I feel like, you know, having come from the traditional medical world where I felt like I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I think that's where burnout comes from is not that you can't, you don't have the time, you don't have the tools. It's we, we are empathetic, caring people. We want to give to the people that need um, something and you can't always feel like you're able to do that. That's, I think, where the burnout comes from not being able to actualize um, the healing that you would love to give to people. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. So 
uh, stress. Do you want to go back to that? Yes, I do. I want to talk about your <laughs> thoughts around stress because stress is is stressful. <laughs> Let's talk about it. So even the most hurried and unsympathetic and reductionist physician will often hear something a patient says and say, oh, well, this is caused, your hypertension is caused by stress or this disease, whatever it is, is, is caused by stress. You need to go do some stress reduction. And we, we, I hear it all the time. It's a, uh, a short shrift, a semi-nod to the notion that things mental might somehow have a role, but then it's quickly dismissed. Mm -hmm. If you look out your window, assuming you're, you've got some nature out there, a tree, a bush, a plant, mm -hmm. uh, what you'll see is in that in the natural world, every bug, every bird, every small mammal, except for the apex predators, is under constant stress of being someone's lunch in the next moment. And yet they don't have autoimmune disease and rampant heart disease and cancer and all the other uh, bad things that, that we're subject to that we often attribute to stress. Moreover, the one person's uh, stresses that you say are causing the illness, the next person may have the exact same stresses and be thriving under. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a fallacious notion. And I will assert if, if for no other reason that, than to get people thinking that stress isn't what causes illness. That's just facile. Um, it's true when you're under tremendous stress, you, you may lose sleep and loss of sleep diminishes your immune defenses. Poorly and a bad diet will diminish your host defenses and, and so forth. But what stress does, and the reason why some people get sick under, under these stresses and others thrive, um, is it often, not always, squeezes a wish, a baleful or unhealthy wish out of a person. So the stress of a job squeezes the wish, oh, I wish I could get out of this no matter what or a stressful marriage, I wish I could get out of this no matter what. And what people need to understand, and especially caregivers, is that our system, our physical system, responds to the volitional system. It's not about stress. It responds to our wishes, our intentions. And all of childhood is about linking, <clears throat> creating a union between things mental, intentions, and actions. I want to lift my head. I want to sit. I want to stand. I want to toddle. I want to walk, skip, and jump. That's mm -hmm. all about what I want to, the intentions, linking to the actions. And so we've taught this system, this union of mind-body, we've taught this system to respond to our intentions, our volitions. And that is what drives 
illnesses, not the stress. The stress is just the backdrop for a baleful wish. It's really important to understand that. Let me give you the classic example because it just happened and we all were witness to it in the days of you know massive COVID anxiety. There were tens of thousands of people who after a while couldn't take the anxiety of worrying, am I gonna get COVID? Am I gonna have lasting adverse effects? Am I gonna die from it? And many of them, all you have to do is ask, and many of them said to themselves, to hell with it, I just wanna get it and get it over with, I can't take this anxiety anymore. And they did, Yeah, they did. It wasn't the stress, because a lot of people didn't form that wish and didn't get COVID. Mm-hmm. It was the baleful wish that crystallized out of that stress that drove those systems to That's a really um, very different way of thinking about that word stress and the intentions and the intentions behind that. And so, so from my perspective, when I think about that with, with a patient that I'm working with, because that's part of what, you know, we, we, we address those kinds of things, right? So, so when you, when you are trying to tease out, it's, it's just what we talked about before, right? What, what's the intention behind this? What, what are some of the, I mean, you're saying like, are the questions that you would ask to find that intention? Why now? Why today? Why still? Well, I also, um, I, I ask, so when I take a history cone, now that I have a sense of what the broad categories are, when I take a history after I've done the traditional history and physical that an allopathic physician would do mm-hmm. and arrive, say, at a diagnosis or at least knowing what uh, differential diagnosis to pursue, after I've done that, I'm on a keen hunt for causes. And I'll ask uh, why today, always as the initial question. But then I'm looking for dangerous identification. I want to know something about their father and their mother and when they died and died from what and uh, early and late history. I want to know what religion they were brought up in as a child. I don't care what it is today necessarily, because what I'm looking for there is, is there a context for guilt? Um, were they brought up in a system where uh, a guilt wish, guilt engenders a wish for punishment? Um, Is that a possibility? Uh, I want to know what curses they've heard, and I'll ask them uh, straight out. What negative things have you been told by doctors or other so-called authorities that you wish you hadn't heard? I'll, I'll ask that question almost every time. And then from that, I'll say, Okay, and what about you? Have have there been any wishes? You know, I have a lot of people who wish they could get out of something. And I'll give an example or two, and that'll trigger it. Um, so I'm always, I'm hunting for those causes because once identified, you've got handles, levers you can pull. Yeah. And I, I think that's why I've been blessed to, to witness uh, lasting cures and people with, uh, frequently and people with illnesses that other allopathic physicians might think are chronic. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's helpful because that does give me sort of a framework to think about how to bring that out from someone. And it's like the timeline that we create in, in functional medicine. We'll go back to childhood and talk about all the different aspects, the lifestyle aspects um, of, you know, nutrition and sleep and stressors, right? Let's call them stressors. Um, the things that might've been present relationships. Um, and I usually tend to explain that as, you know, that can be anything from relationships to, because people will always say, well, I don't have stress because, or stressors because they think of the big, big things, right? I didn't have like a parent who, um, abused me or something like that. And sometimes it's, it, there are different things, right? It doesn't have to be that it was abuse. It could have been just the way someone talked to you as a child, right? So you're saying like a relationship with a parent or um, an elder or someone who was a caregiver. Um, that gives kind of a, a nice um, way of, of getting at some of those things. Well, let me add something to that because I can, I can hear uh, what you're doing. Uh, the first is I applaud you for knowing the distinction which Hans Selyer himself insisted upon when he heard how the word stress was being abused by its uh, sort of generalized parlance. And so he was sick of that uh, because he had done very specific experiments and he had described exactly what the stress was. And then it became just this generalized throwaway term. So he went to stressor and had various categories of stressors, including psychological. Sure. So. Yeah, good for you for that. What, I, what I'm saying, this is not in the book. This is the topic of my next book. But, uh, and I hope you'll forgive me, but <laughs> when I say this, but you are 98.8% chimpanzee. Yeah. Good news is so am I, and so is everyone listening. <laughs> and you can quibble about percentages, but the fact is an enormous part of our genome uh, is equivalent to chimpanzee uh, genome. And when you go to the zoo, as you will now imagine, I, I do not infrequently, and you watch the chimps and you see a young male chimp <clears throat> grow up having all the mannerisms of the father, treating the fem his females now as the father had treated his, um, behaving in every way, the way the father ch chimp did, you're unamazed by it. And you walk away, as I hear people, when I'm just sitting there watching, say, well, monkey see, monkey do. Mm, yeah. And we're none of us are amazed by that. But when we start dealing with humans, instead of realizing that our first resort the primary interpretation should look to no psychodynamics whatsoever, and but rather focus on imitative elements of that behavior. We don't do that. And we don't do that because we've been taught a bunch of, again, this is my opinion, so <laughs> a bunch of psychobabble that sounds reasonable because we've learned, just like we've learned to appreciate certain tones in music, uh, we've learned to accept a Freudian type of air castle psychodynamic interpretation. What I'm saying is, 
if you take the time to understand the thematics, not the particulars, but the thematics of uh, parents' lives. Uh, the guy was work-focused, uh, retired, decayed, and died, being the thematic of the guy I just told you about with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Then you see how thematically the imitative imper imperative that governs all primates is active also in us. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of an understanding, which, which should not be surprising because of our genetics, um, right now in our, uh, even though people disparage Freud, it's still a Freudian-based uh, culture of psychology. That, that kind of understanding will shift things and allow you uh, to see patients in a different light. Mm. Um, ask routinely about, this is how I do it. Forget about now. Tell me what your mother was like when you were little. Okay, now tell me your father. Now, how did they relate? Because that was imprinted through identification. <clears throat> and then in the next session, I'll say, okay, and as they got older, what happened? And you'll be amazed. I don't know how much uh, time we have if you have time for another case story. But I you'll be amazed at what you can learn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that 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 shift in, in thinking about that because then there's always something to talk about, right? Like people always have a story about how their parents interacted or how they were when they were younger, regardless of whether someone would call it, you know, a difficult relationship or not. People often have great childhoods. Well, how was that great for you? How did your mom really interact with you? I like that because it's a question everybody can answer. But look for the imitative aspects of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I would advise don't apply a psychodynamic interpretation mm -hmm. until you've understood the imitative elements thematically yeah. of the story, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, as you talk about that, especially with the um, patient that you had that had pancreatic cancer, it just occurred to me, my brother-in-law passed away at 59 from pancreatic cancer, but I was just remembering that his father passed away very young too, from an infection in the hospital, he was always sick. And that was a really, really deeply um, emotional thing for him because he felt, and, and now I have to think back because it just popped in my head. I'm thinking back, how old was his father when he passed away? Now you're dead. I, I don't that's really even know, but that's yeah, exactly, that's, this is so helpful for me. And I think for a lot of other people. Yeah. Let me tell this one quick story. I'll do it in 45 seconds. Oh, you can take that. <laughs> 72 years old, depressed as hell. And his story is, uh, he was on a Sunday afternoon, driving on a, uh, slowly on a dry road with his wife on their Harley. And for reasons no one could explain, he dumped the Harley. The wife jumped off, but he fell and he shattered his shoulder. He had to go to surgery and then from surgery rehab. And he was becoming progressively more depressed as he was going through rehab. It was very painful. And uh, 
during rehab, uh, he learned that his partner of 25 years, business partner of 25 years, had absconded with $2 million, which was all the money the business had in the bank. And so he came to see me with chief complaint depression. You want to do some psychodynamic uh, work on that? This is what I'm saying. <clears throat> Forbear. Let's get the history first. So I got the history in the first session of his data in the early years. But remember, this guy is now 72. Yeah. Say he's an adult, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't say he's an adult unless I know he's disidentified. When his dad was <clears throat> right around 70, he had a terrible automobile accident and broke his back. He had to go through multiple surgeries and then into rehab. While his father was in rehab, he learned that his business partner embezzled $35,000 from him, which at the time was a ginormous amount of money. And the father, consequent to that, became so darkly depressed that he ultimately reached for a gun and blew his brains out. Wow. Now, if you didn't know that history, you wouldn't know that the patient sitting in front of you has a primary diagnosis, not of depression, but of impending suicide. Wow. And that's a very, very different kettle of fish. Sure. The, the story is, once he disidentified, so you see the thematics replicate. Yeah. Once he disidentified, he became happy, his artistic ability, this happens a lot, <clears throat> Dis disidentified, his artistic, he was never an artist. And he began drawing these magnificent drawings. I have one, one of them hanging here. Hmm. And uh, his business, he got some new partners resurrected uh, and he did quite well. And he's still, still around to this day, happy and, and married and uh, not suicidal. Yeah, yeah. But it shows you in stark terms, I think, how critically important it is to understand what it means to be 98.8% chimpanzee. And I'm sorry, I have great admiration for the cleverness of Dr. Freud, but he was often, most often wrong. Hmm. Well, so that's your, your new book that you're working on right now, right? Causes and Cures. Causes and Cures. So... So let me, you know, we are definitely, we're in like an hour and 15 minutes now, which is great. <laughs> but I, there's a couple of things that I do want to, to make sure we, we get to. Um, and they're kind of, we can make them quick if we want to. Um, but how do you think this works in terms of, of doing things the way we are right now over Zoom? Do you do any of that with, with your patients or do you need to be right with them in face-to-face -face in, the, in the presence? Yeah, I've done a little bit on Zoom. I don't like it, I'll be honest, for two reasons. One, you can have, you know, midway a technical glitch and you have a patient in trance, for example, and it's awful. Okay. Uh, so even though in the in the one where that happened, it, the, the results worked out to be nice, it's disconcerting when it, it happens. The yeah. other, as you can imagine, um, is that when you're uh, trained to look for minimal cues uh, in a 
a person, which is my training. And it's, every hypnotist does that. Yeah. The minimal cues that you often look for happen below the level of the screen. Right. And they're likewise, the, even the ones that you can see are sometimes more difficult to pick up, although they're detectable. So yeah. Yeah. you can do it on Zoom. And I know people who do. Um, it's just not my preferred method. May not be as effective. And so, again, how would people be able to find someone? Is there sort of a, a register of people who've been trained similar to you? I know you've brought in lots of different things, but as a medical hypnosis, or is there a way to find someone who might be doing that in, in someone's area? I have to say, it's really, uh, I wish I had a different answer. It's really difficult Yeah. now. Um, those physicians that I teach and train, they're scattered all over, but you know, we're talking uh, uh, in the hundreds, not in the tens of thousands, which it needs to ultimately reach. Right. Um, the best thing you can do, I think as a patient is when you're in the presence of of uh, let's say it's a physician, but whoever the healthcare worker is, you have to retain your own personal agency, no matter how uh, sick you are, you still have to understand that the person you're listening to, you're gonna decide whether you take their advice or not, whether you retain them or not. You can always discharge them and find someone else, even if that's difficult within uh, the system you're in. Um, and then listen for how they talk. And it's fair to tell a doctor, look, I'm a little vulnerable right now. I would really appreciate that you avoid any negative suggestion, even if you think they're factual. Mm -hmm. Refrain from predicting, because I, I read a book that told me you don't know your own tomorrow. So please don't predict mine. Yeah. It's fair to say that to a doc. And if the doc can't handle that, you already know that's the wrong person. Exactly. That's great advice. That's great advice. And that sort of leads me to my next question is some of the principles in the book, it, it feels like you can adjust the way you're thinking and who you're looking for and some of the language you use. Is there a way to use some of these principles for yourself, um, even a little bit more than what you're talking about? How can we do some of this ourselves, like the, the visualization, taking the mantra, thinking differently about something? Yeah, well, that's probably my favorite question right okay. of course you can if you think about it what are you, what what are normal healthy people doing out there already well let me give you some uh things to avoid and some things to do you've learned the first is never allow a baleful wish right a baleful wish and i gotta get out of this no matter what no matter what wishes are out forever you cannot have them and insist within yourself on only healthy solutions, only healthy choices. That's what healthy people do anyway. They talk to their unconscious and they say, this is not okay. So they negatively re reinforce undesirable outcomes and they say, yes, thank you even more mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a positive reinforcement for outcomes that they wanna replicate. You have a cut and it's healing well. Okay, thank you. Yes, even more, even faster next time. Right. Uh, 
suddenly you have a cold and you're getting over it quicker than everyone else in the family. Yeah, that's great. Thank you even more. So I call it training your dragon, but this is Chinese happy dragon, right? You're, you're using uh, Pavlovian principles to train your unconscious processes uh, so that you favor replicating the positive ones and expunging uh, the negative ones. Perfect. Yeah. Guilt is a big one in people. And so people need to understand there's two components to guilt. One is the normal shame and regret we feel when we do something wrong or stupid or tragic. That's fine. Learn, take that, use it to learn the lesson so you never repeat it again. That's what we should all be doing. That's called life. Um, but the second component of guilt is the need for punishment. This is taught. This isn't intrinsic. It's taught by various religions and, and systems. Yeah. And uh, it's not okay. And it causes an enormous amount of pain and, and suffering. And so dive into yourself, find out if it's there, uh, get rid of it the same way you got rid of other notions that were delivered to you in your childhood that you no longer adhere to. Those might've been spiritual or political or aesthetic or moral, but you're, you're crafting your own self over time by consistently upgrading your early childhood conceptions or misconceptions. Do that with guilt as well and disallow it. It's really, really dangerous. Uh, avoid curses like we talked about. If you're with a doctor who can't say it right, get out of there and go to someone who can. Yeah. Uh, those are some uh, quick, simple things you can uh, do noetically uh, to keep yourself on track. The key is only healthy solutions and only healthy choices. Yeah. It's very easy to know what they are. I'll tell you one thing I tell all my patients, when you come to a crossroad, <clears throat> meaning you have a problem and you have to decide which way to go, just ask yourself, because everyone always knows the answer, no, no matter how sick or twisted they might be. <laughs> so, what would a normal, healthy person do in this situation? And then do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's really good advice. And I have actually um, referred your book to so many people already because I feel like it's super helpful for people to understand some of these concepts. It, it supports the work that I do and what we do with um, people in functional medicine as well. It's, it's really, these components are so, so critical. So I appreciate you being here and I have loved this conversation and I think it can go on for <laughs> a bit longer, but we probably don't have as much time as we would like. Maybe I can bring you back. And, and when your next book is out, that definitely, um, I would love to have you back on when the next book is out. Um, is that sort of in the beginning stages or are you sort of close to the end? Where are you with it? Yeah, I would say it's probably two two more years. It's uh, when you talk about causes and cures, uh, you have to lay out first these broad categories of noetic causes, and then each, of course, has multiple ways to address it in terms of cure. So it's quite long. Yeah, well, and writing a book is a process anyway. Um, so I <laughs> I know that my husband's been in that process for a long time. Um, so I appreciate this time um, and thank you so much for being here. I'm going to put in the show notes links to some of this stuff, maybe even to some of the studies that um, you said you published that first 
experience. So I'd love to hear um, where we can get that, the link for that. Maybe people can look at that as well. Um, so thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, just thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Sure. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I think you can tell during the conversation that I was having a good time. Uh, if you work in healthcare, I am quite certain you took a few pieces of really important information from this conversation. How will you talk to your patients differently? And if you're a patient, I do hope this has empowered you to consider the healthcare professionals you're working with and how language matters, theirs and your own about your own circumstances. As we talked about at the end, you can employ this yourself and start to change the baleful wishes you might have in your life. And likely we all have a few of those. Thank you so much for listening. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and rating or reviewing. It goes a long way to helping this podcast continue to put out good content. Until next time, stay well.